Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. This is episode number one of The Next Track. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm fine, Doug. How are you? I'm good. I'm anxious to get started. Well, we're going to introduce our new podcast today, aren't we? Yep. Golly, let's put on a podcast. Kind of like in those old movies um, where they say, let's put on a show, and they go to the barn and they put some sort of a musical comedy on. Except that we're not trying to raise money for the orphanage so their uh, mortgage doesn't get foreclosed. We've been hemming and hawing about trying to do something like this for a while. Yeah, I I think we've known each other for more than 10 years, uh, again, primarily through our work about iTunes. So anyone who doesn't know, Doug writes Apple scripts for iTunes, and his website is DougScripts.com. So naturally, given the writing that I do about iTunes, Doug and I have known each other for a long, long time. Seems like the natural thing to do. And as Doug says, we've been around for a long time. In other words, we're not young. Well, which is to say we've got a lot of experience. I mean, we've seen a lot of changes over the years. Yeah, we're we're both music fans, music lovers. We have big music libraries and collections, and we've been collecting since, well, the analog days. Right. We're we're genuinely interested in and how people get music, how people play music, how people collect music, the way music is thrust upon us. Yeah, the tagline for this podcast is it's a podcast about how people listen to music today. And this covers a lot of things. It covers software and hardware. It covers whether you buy downloads or stream music or, God forbid, you still buy CDs like some of us old people. Um We'll be discussing audio equipment, whether it be for the living room, though this isn't really a hi-fi audio show, um, but the kind of audio equipment you might connect to your computer, um, hardware you might use to stream from your computer to other rooms in the house, headphones, earbuds, uh, portable speakers, the, the whole thing. And it's an interesting time right now, too. We're, we're still transitioning from the what I call the record collection paradigm to the music access paradigm. And it's not only music listeners that are making this transition, but also the business of music distribution. That's changing, too. Radio is competing with streams. Subscription services are competing with physical purchasing. Yeah, the music industry for decades was sort of chugging along slowly and comfortably until the CD era came along. And all of a sudden, they realized they could get people to rebuy all the music or a lot of the music in their collection. And if you find one of those graphs on the Internet that shows total music sales, you'll see how it spiked um, I guess the late 1980s, so the first CDs came out around 84 or so. The late 1980s and the early 90s, it spiked, and then it's been slowing down since then, partly because people replaced their vinyl collections and partly because of Napster and illegal downloads and piracy. But the music industry is trying to figure out another way to get us to buy our music again. And they do this, um, they do this in a lot of ways for people our age, who grew up with bands in the 70s and the 80s, and they re-release albums that are remastered with bonus tracks and live albums and all that. But that's not enough. So they will keep trying to come up with new formats and new delivery methods in order to keep boosting the bottom line. Yeah, well, that stuff isn't making anybody any money just sitting around in a, in a record company vault somewhere. And reissuing uh, back catalog is a time-honored tradition. But will... Do I really want to keep buying every album I ever bought in every new format that comes out? I mean, uh, or will I, you know, or will I opt to pay for access to every record ever recorded? I mean, it's a transition that a lot of people of our generation are a little uncomfortable with. If you think back, going from LP to CD, that kind of made sense. It's like, oh, I see, smaller but better. I get it. 
But going from CD to digital downloads is a little suspect, and then going from digital downloads to streaming, streaming of everything, that's just that's, that's hard to understand, hard to grasp for some people. You made a good point there about the, the ability to listen to everything when you're streaming. As, as someone with a large, carefully selected and curated, even though I don't like that word, music collection, um, I find the whole thing about streaming, there's sometimes too much choice. And discovery needs to be better. Um, we're not going to go into detail on any of these topics today, but this is an idea of some of the things we will talk about. Um, the issue of discovery is quite important with streaming music. Uh, just last night, I saw a mention of an album on Twitter that I actually bought from the iTunes store 10 years ago, and I hadn't listened to it in about five years, and I put it on, and it was like, wow, why have I not listened to this? And, and I've actually listened to it three times today. Um, so the whole discovery thing is sometimes it's just a reminder that you've got these things in your library already. Or if you're still listening to CDs, I, I sold off an awful lot of CDs recently. Um, I, I used to have like a wall of CDs. And, and to pick some music back before I'd ripped everything, to pick some music from my library, it was always problematic. It's no easier in iTunes. It's no easier with Apple Music or Spotify or anything. Um, if anything, too much choice makes it in some ways harder. Yeah, let's not pretend that we're typical. I mean, uh, we're, we're not. We have very wide, varied, eclectic, and broad music tastes. But I think the uh, the conventional listener would be more than happy to listen to the same 500,000 songs at a time. And it seems that a lot of the services that are available now really cater to that majority of radio-type listeners who are perfectly content to hear the same music over and over again because it's what they like, it's what's familiar, it makes them feel good, whatever. Um, if you'll remember when the iPod first came out, it was shocking to say a thousand songs in your pocket. And to many people, that was more than enough. It's certainly enough for you know someone who just casually listens to music, who wants to have a little background music, a little wallpaper, as we sometimes say, because that's all it is to them. It's just it's nice in the background, and it, it's familiar, and they're happy with it. Um, so discovery for some people is difficult. Discovery for others, it's a non-issue because they know what they like, they like what they know, and that's pretty much all they want to listen to, and there's nothing wrong with that. So let's move on to our main topic. So what we wanted to talk about today has a bit to do with music history. Back in the early days of music, people listened to songs. And then in the 1950s and the 60s and later, people started listening to albums. Now, we were just talking in the previous segment about how music has gone towards streaming. And people listen to songs when they're listening to streaming more often. They listen to playlists or individual songs. And it's actually quite an interesting history of how the music how music consumption has changed because of the way music has been presented and sold. If we're talking strictly popular music, for decades, the song was the thing. Before radio or music recording, you bought a song as sheet music, and you brought it home and you played it on the piano. A lot of people had pianos in their home. Or you might have had a, a, a player piano and bought a piano roll, which would have been one song at a time as well. But still, you bought music one song at a time. It's not like songwriters held back on publishing a song because they needed a, a batch for a songbook or something. They'd sell the song right away. So the song was the thing, even up to the early days of music recording. Yeah. Um, be before we were listening to music, people were buying songs on 78 RPM records. And... In some cases, a song would actually span two sides or more, and particularly in classical music, uh, classical work would span multiple sides. 
Then, these 78 RPM discs were assembled in what was called an album, and it looked like a photo album with pages. And, you know, if you see sometimes um, multiple CDs in what's called digipacks, these are the ones that they sort of, they don't, they're not plastic boxes, they open and you slide the CDs into the, the slot on the top. And so the, these original albums were like that, and it was called an album because it was an album of songs, the same way a photo album is an album of photos. It's a really neat evolution because here you'd be, you'd be buying all these 10-inch records that came in paper liners, which I'm, I'm presuming that most people just threw away, and cardboard album jackets came much later. So you'd be buying all these 10-inch records and stacking them up all over the house. So what you would do is you'd go to the music store and you'd buy one of these empty albums and you'd fill the sleeves up with your record collection so that you could put it on a shelf so that these records weren't stacked all up near the phonograph. And it was only later that record companies uh, began issuing their own albums. But even then, the idea that this kind of album, this collection of, of singles, was anything but a simple storage solution, that idea was to, to come much later. And I'm not sure when it was, the 40s, the 50s, when they started releasing 10-inch, 33 and a third RPM records, which we later knew as EPs, extended play records, um, sort of in between the single and the album. And then in the 50s, the album was born. And this, of course, made a difference not only in the packaging of the music, but in the way the recordings were actually conceived. The concept album. Yeah. So, so the, the idea of a concept album, this is something, it, it's actually interesting to try and pin it down. Um, not long ago, I watched this documentary that's on Netflix about Frank Sinatra called All or Nothing at All. And they pointed out how he had a number of thematic albums. These weren't necessarily recorded in a way like Sgt. Pepper or Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, but they grouped certain types of songs. And, and looking at his discography, I see one, um, Sinatra sings great songs from Great Britain, and there's a, a Count Basie album, and a July Christmas from, San, from Frank Sinatra in 1957, or Songs for Swingin' Lovers in 1956. Another one which I consider a concept album is Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. He didn't write the songs. He went into the studio with some very sort of basic modal charts. And he said to the musicians, I want us to play in these modes. And they played, and I think it was two sessions or two days or whatever, and they recorded the best-selling jazz album of all time. And so by this time, the, the single 78 is outmoded and the lingua franca is the uh the long playing 12 inch or the long playing stereo 12 inch also and also happening at the same time there was this explosion in um in home audio uh audio equipment became very affordable and as a result these people started getting hungry for lots of new music so a lot of record companies started springing up and started putting stuff out so the the quicker they could get a record out the better and a, a lot of these groups would uh would, would do covers or would do their, their stage repertoire to maximize on studio time, right? The Beatles, they recorded their first album in one day, mostly covers. Yeah, Dylan's first album, I think there was only one song that he wrote. All the rest was covers or traditional. Um, the, the Rolling Stones released maybe three or four albums of covers, and it's actually, you don't see these out, you don't hear about these albums much, but their early stuff was, they're just covering old blues songs and Chuck Berry and, and things like that. But the album itself, of course, came into its heyday with FM radio. Uh, I remember growing up in New York, we had WNEW, which was, you know, the, the real radio station that would even play full sides of albums in the evenings. What was her name? Allison Steele? 
opened 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 her show with that the bit from Wizard of Oz, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, so the album corresponded to a democratization of audio equipment as well. So you remember in the 60s, you had a, a little tiny turntable with a tinny speaker. Um, and then in the 70s, actual stereos started becoming more common and, and less expensive. And, and more portable, too. Um, you know, if you were carrying around a Walkman, you'd want to be sure it had all your albums with you on the go. Um, the, the album has really been repurposed a lot. And in fact, I think it's, it's almost sort of non-essential now. We're, we're post-album because songs are now disintegrated from albums. They're parts of playlists or, or the reverse token. I can get every work by an artist so that its delineation by album is less important. I recently grabbed all of Stereolab studio albums from Apple Music as, as a package. And I don't know their discography very well. I'm just more interested in hearing as much Stereolab music as possible. The album that the, each track comes on doesn't really make that much difference to me. Yeah, but but it's also related to the way that we're watching box sets of TV series, I think. So you, you've got your nine seasons of the X-Files plus the, the sort of faux X-Files that came out early this year, and you can buy or download a box set. I mean, I bought all the episodes of The West Wing on, on the iTunes store for 100 bucks. I bought all the episodes of The Wire. And that's more, it seems to me that this big box set of music is related in some ways to that. Sure. And it's, it's also because they're, they're take advantage of their back catalogs, too. That's, you know, it's, otherwise it's just sitting there. So repackaging the back catalog uh, is just another way for, for them to turn a buck. Sure. And, and I think it was 2005, um, the first... So the first, what, what uh, the iTunes store called digital box set was the U2, the complete U2 in 2004. And in 2005, they released the complete Bob Dylan, which, if I'm not mistaken, was 879 tracks. This was all of his studio albums up until then, all of his live albums, all of what's called the bootleg series, which is outtakes and studio um, and live recordings uh, up until then. And I remember 879 tracks, uh, and I think it was $175. Now... You can't beat that for, for what was really about 60 albums worth of material. Yeah, that's true. It's just amazing. And, but they can get away with it because their, their costs are less now, at this point now. Well, their costs are less, and, and these tracks have been amortized 100 times. Yeah. Um, so we shouldn't only talk about pop music because there's a big trend in classical music to sell very big box sets at very low prices. Um, on my shelf over here to the left, I have three box sets Four, sorry, four box sets of music recorded by Leonard Bernstein, who conducted the New York Philharmonic for a long time, and who later conducted other orchestras like the Vienna and the Israel Philharmonic. Um, each one is about 60 or 70 CDs. Two of them are on Deutsche Grammophon and two are on Sony, because he was first on Columbia Sony, then he moved to Deutsche Grammophon. That's a lot of CDs. I, I think each one of these box sets costs less than $2 per disc. Now, there is a certain bulimia in buying these big classical box sets, and, and I think I finally cured myself of this, and I don't plan to buy any more. Um, but it's really tempting if you're a classical music fan, even if you only listen to 10 out of 50 or 60 albums that you've paid, you know, maybe $50 for. Um, it, it's really a big, it's, it's a huge bargain. And these are all things where the recording's been amortized. Um, there's probably no royalties to pay because of the way contracts were back then. You might pay a soloist or a conductor, but not the orchestra. And almost everything's in the public domain, so there's no performance royalties. Yeah, the Apple Store made me feel much more acquisitive. You know, having a 
having a, a conduit right to the music right there on your computer makes it really easy to become overly acquisitive. I'm glad to hear you're getting over your bulimia. Um, I've done the same thing. I've become nuts about the Who's Live at Leeds. I had the original album as when I was a teenager, and I bought CD versions of it. But then they came out with a deluxe version, which has the full concert on it. And then they came out with a super deluxe version that had two concerts on it from Leeds. And then there was a super mega ultra monster killer deluxe version that had the two Leeds concerts and the two concerts in Hull from like a week earlier. So... So I became obsessive over these over these shows, over this album. And it probably costs about the same as you paid for the first original album. Yeah, well, yeah. So that's one way. I, I was saying earlier that they get you to buy, to rebuy your albums, and that's one way they do it. You say, well, I'm getting all this extra stuff, and it costs the same as what I paid, or maybe a little bit more. Yeah, that's where my wife would draw the line and say, why do I want to have every song ever recorded? What's the point of that? But the point is is that we're acquisitive, and you know, we've got to have everything. Uh, as Doug just said that, I'm holding up The Grateful Dead's Dave's Picks, number 18, recorded on July 17, 1976, with some content from July 16 as well. Um, if you've never heard me on a podcast or read my website, you don't know that I'm a deadhead, a fan of The Grateful Dead, and deadheads are nothing if not obsessive. I was wondering how long we'd go before you'd mention The Grateful Dead. <laughs> well, I actually got a Dylan mention in before. Um, and so they release four of these a year. Um, each one is a full concert and sometimes there's extra stuff if the, to, to fill up the, the CDs. They released additional things other than these Dave's Picks. And the Dave's Picks series is up to volume 18. It follows Dick's Picks, um, which was named after Dick Latvala, who was the previous tape archiver, but who died. Um, and so... Um, Dave Lemieux is the new tape archiver, so he gets his name on them. So, yeah, I've got hundreds of officially released Grateful Dead concerts and hundreds of other bootlegs. Um, what's interesting is you can actually find a lot of the, not the Dave's picks, but you can find the Dick's picks and many others on iTunes and Spotify. So you really don't have to own them, but there's just something that it sort of, it marks the seasons for me to have, you know, a new Dead record every three months or a new box set once a year. Oh, I can understand how you can rationalize your mania for acquisition. Sure, I get it. I do the same thing. Um, you've got to have every single track. You're a completist. But it, it, what's interesting is I this Dave's pick um, volume eighteen. I don't think of it. I don't think of each disc as an album. I think of the concert as a unit. So. There's a song, there's the disc, it's three discs, but then there's the concert. And if I'm going to listen to this music, it's going to be listed in my iTunes library as July 1776, not Dave's Picks 18. And I'll go listen to the concert from that date, which is two and a half, three, maybe three and a half hours long. So the unit for me in live music tends to be a concert rather than an a, album. A performance rather than right. a, a single track, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, and originally, I think, since most of the music that you could buy, and going back to the old days, the 30s and the 40s, since most of those recordings were opera and classical, there some jazz, but jazz was considered pop. You'd have one song. But on a classical piece, you'd definitely want to collect three, four, five uh, singles that had, you actually had to turn a record over sometimes to actually, in the middle of a movement. In the middle of a movement, um, you know, a, a Beethoven symphony would have been on a half a dozen records, and you'd have to turn it over many times. Whereas when we got to the, the sort of concept album in the 1970s, 
no concept album was ever conceived to run straight through from the end of side A to the beginning of side B. The, the best example is Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick in 1972. The first album winds down into a sort of a, a, a funny kind of a whoop-whoop sound, and then it picks up again on the, on the beginning of side two. Now, when the CD era came along, you could have... 60, 70 minute tracks and, and, and you have, you know, Brian Eno's made some ambient compositions that are that long and, and other musicians have. Um, but until the CD came along, you were still limited by that side. Just as with 78s, you were limited to what, three or four minutes. In the 70s, you were limited to 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah, I think a good example of, of something like a, a long performance is the Woodstock album, which was three albums and it was, it was, Produced in such a way that side one backed side six, side two backed sides five, side three backed side four. So you could stack them on your record changer and get some semblance of some continuity. But you'd still, at the end of the three records, you'd have to go up to the machine and, or make your roommate do it, uh, go up and, and flip the discs on the changer again to hear the next three sides. Yeah, I remember a number of live albums that were like that. Two two record sets where you'd have sides one and four on the first record and two and three on the second. And... I honestly don't remember if I actually listened very often like that, in the sense of I want to listen to all four sides and I'm going to listen to two and and then flip them over and listen to the other two. I think because of the, the effort involved, you usually settled on like, I'll just listen to this one side and then maybe I'll get up and switch it. So So one thing about the early album era is people still did listen to singles by just playing one track on an album and maybe picking up the needle and moving it back and playing it again. If they bought the album instead of the single and they really liked a certain song, they might do that. Um, I don't think I did it a lot. I've always been an album person, um, but I'm sure there were times when it's like, wow, that's a great song, i got to hear it again. And you pick the needle up and put it down and scratch the record a little bit. I would get in that habit because as later when I got into radio and I actually was a real disc jockey and I'd become impatient, I'd say, okay, I'd play... 15 seconds of a song, and that would remind me of another song I'd want to play, so I'd immediately want that song to end and move on to the next one. So it was always, it was always about the next track. But, I mean, I still do that today. It's like I'll be halfway through a song. It's like, okay, I got the thrill of that out of the way. What's, I've got to go what's to another next? One. Yeah, what are you going to yeah. listen to next? What's next? And, and let's not forget the sort of transitional period when tapes were the big thing. Um, first eight tracks and then cassettes. And the thing about tapes is you couldn't really listen to a particular song unless it was the first song on one side. Right. Well, so, how many times did you ever make a mixtape and say, oh, sure. don't listen to that one. Skip forward to the next one. You want to hear that one. Well, yeah, but you can't. Yeah. You couldn't skip on a tape. So you'd be fast forwarding right. and then you'd go too far and you'd have to go back and it was always yeah. annoying. Um, yeah. great, so, great in the car, too. Yeah. Talk about distracted driving. Well, and, and eight-track tapes were particularly odious. And I, I remember very well a friend of mine, John, had this big Mercury with a, an excellent stereo in it. And we had the Bruce Springsteen Born to Run on 8-track. And I don't think it came at this exact spot, but, you know, the song's going on, Baby, We Were Ka-Chunk, yeah. Born to Run. And it would always... The 8-track would, would switch track. It would yeah. switch tracks. And then it was almost it's almost worse than having to flip a 78 to hear the second half of the movement because you'd get the, a ka-chunk, a very, very audible ka-chunk with 8-tracks. With but I think, you know, that's a funny thing about 8-tracks is that the convenience of having music portably with you and the music that you wanted, people were willing to put up with the nonsense of 8-tracks. There was a limit, though. I mean, there weren't portable 8-track players. It would be like carrying around a bowling ball all day. I, I don't remember ever seeing one. I don't know if it exists, but, I mean, they were big in cars, and, and some people had them at home. Um, t tape had its days, and 
I've been hearing from some people, you know, the, the so-called vinyl resurgence. I've been hearing from some people that tape might be going under a resurgence. Not so much cassette, but reel-to-reel. Because reel-to-reel has extraordinary fidelity. If you get the really thick tapes and, and play them very fast, um, it's so the speed that the tape is written in red, not playing the music too fast, they do have very good fidelity. Oh, yeah. Back in the back in my radio days, we used to master everything down to reel-to-reel. I used to cart a lot of that stuff around with me for years. So I finally got rid of it because it's just not worth holding on to. It doesn't Yeah, it wears out. out over time. Right, it wears out. And uh, there's some method that I so friends of mine have tried where you bake it in an oven to prevent the oxide from... Uh, from drooling all out of the of the boxes, but I've heard good and bad results from that. I'd rather have give me the CD or a digital download. A digital download is good too. I'm good with digital download. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. The history we would, we went from songs to albums, and we're back to songs. And I think the album and the song are going to coexist. Um, I think a, a lot more people are interested in listening to songs, but. Uh, we just recently saw the new album by Drake that sold a million copies in five days as an album on the iTunes store. I don't know if how many of the songs were available individually. Well, look at Adele. I mean, she sold a ton of CDs, CD albums, to uh, people who hadn't been buying CDs in a while. So the album is healthy, but I, I also think that uh, the track is, is the currency. Yep. On every episode of The Next Track, Kirk and I will be picking our next tracks, literally the next track queued up on the hi-fi at home. Uh, this week, I was influenced by uh, a great documentary I saw that PBS has been running on American Masters. It's called Janice, Little Girl Blue. It's a documentary about Janice Joplin. It was quite good, actually. I learned a, a whole heck of a lot about Janice that I didn't know before, at least about her personally. I knew about the, the band she played with and things like that, but... Uh, the, the, the biographical stuff I, I was vague on. It was really good. Unfortunately, the documentary does not have a lot of live performances. They have, you know, some clips here and there. And I was really, uh, I really got into the mood to hear some Janis Joplin from the late 60s. So I got uh, Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company live at Winterland 68 uh, that came out in 1998. It's a pretty good show. It's nice and sloppy. Probably typical of what they sounded like uh, at the time, so I'm looking forward to giving that a listen. Well, we can just, of course, mention another Grateful Dead reference. Oh, yeah. Um, Janis Joplin and Pigpen, who was the Grateful Dead's early keyboard player and, and bluesy singer, they were lovers for a while. And there's a really interesting movie called Festival Express. It was filmed in 1970. A bunch of bands got on a train and rode along across Canada from east to west, stopping and playing concerts at a number of different places. The Grateful Dead, the band, Janis Joplin, and a whole lot of other musicians. Um, if you can find that, it's worth it to see a couple of Janis Joplin performances. Kirk, what's your next track? I said earlier that I saw a mention of an album on Twitter yesterday that I had bought in 2006 and I hadn't listened to it in a long time. I've listened to it three times today and I'm going to listen to it again once or twice later. This this goes along with the idea of listening to albums that when it's new or something you haven't listened to in a while, I like to listen to it over and over. Um, and it's it's an album called Surprise by Paul Simon. It's from 2006. It's the only Paul Simon album I own. It might be the only one I've ever owned. And the main reason I bought it is because Brian Eno produced it. Um, Brian Eno is well known for his ambient music, his more recent sort of electronic music that's kind of edgy. Um, but he's also a great producer. He's produced Bowie and U2 and all sorts of people. And this is a really interesting album. It's Paul Simon's pop music with Brian Eno's soundscapes. Um, I've been grooving to this all morning, and I'll be grooving to it later after we finish recording. 
This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find us at thenexttrack.com and on iTunes. And if you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and give a rating to the podcast. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.